0: On October 2, 1919, First Lady Edith Wilson frantically phoned the White House usher. She asked that her husband's doctor come immediately to his quarters.
1: The physician arrived to find President Woodrow Wilson lying half paralyzed on the floor. He couldn't move the left side of his body and he struggled to speak.
0: Within minutes, the physicians reached a diagnosis the president had suffered a stroke.
1: The primary treatment was rest, a nearly impossible request to make of the president. Edith would have to somehow isolate her husband from the grueling
0: demands of his work. The 46-year-old first lady wondered how the United States would carry on without its leader. She asked the doctors if the vice president should assume some of the presidential responsibilities.
1: Dr. Francis Durkham, one of Wilson's physicians, feared that if the president resigned, he would lose his will to live. He leaned toward Edith and gave her advice that would change the course of history.
0: He said, quote, Madam, it is a grave situation, but I think you can solve it. Have everything come to you weigh the importance of each matter and see if it is possible by consultation with the respective heads of the departments to solve them without the guidance of your husband
1: that was all edith wilson needed to hear with the fate of the nation in her hands she made the executive decision to fill in for the president of the united states
0: You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This
1: is our one-part episode on Edith Wilson, who's been referred to as the secret president of the United States during the late 1910s.
0: Officially, she was the first lady to President Woodrow Wilson. After Wilson suffered a paralyzing stroke, Edith looked after him. And tried to shield him from the anxieties that came with being president.
1: But historians believe that Edith downplayed her role, which she described as just a quote, steward. Debates have ensued about just how powerful Edith was during her husband's recovery.
0: Today, we'll just be exploring one conspiracy that after President Woodrow Wilson's stroke, Edith Wilson became the first female president of the United States.
1: We
2: have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
3: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here
1: To this day, President Woodrow Wilson is remembered for his grueling work ethic and tireless leadership during the end of World War I. With Wilson in charge, the United States remained neutral for years.
0: Eventually, when America's adversaries provoked the nation beyond neutrality, Wilson felt compelled to join the war, which shocked the world. The United States' participation ultimately proved to be a tipping point, securing the Allies' victory over Germany.
1: In an effort to negotiate a lasting peace agreement, President Wilson spent the first months of 1919 in Europe, alongside diplomats at the Paris Peace Conference.
0: This was one of the most important moments in Wilson's presidency. After all, he was trying to prevent another world war. The conference was an opportunity to convince world leaders to solve their differences through diplomacy rather than aggression.
1: In an effort to stay focused, Wilson removed exercise, entertainment, and relaxation from his routine. This relentless pursuit for world peace was exhausting for the 62-year-old Wilson. He'd already suffered three strokes in his life, including one earlier in his presidency.
0: Seemingly, his rigor paid off. In June 1919, newspapers reported that Wilson and his fellow leaders had reached a historic agreement called the Treaty of Versailles. The treaty is still remembered by historians as a major component of Wilson's legacy.
1: It marked the end of World War I and the birth of the League of Nations, an intergovernmental organization whose mission was to maintain world peace. In fact, the League of Nations was Wilson's own idea and a precursor to what we now know as the United Nations.
0: But his vision wasn't very popular in America. Congress was resistant to approve the treaty. They feared the US was deferring too much of its power to the League of Nations. As a result, Wilson decided to appeal directly to the American people by going on a nationwide speaking tour. If he could buoy enough public support, it would put pressure on the Senate to finally ratify the treaty.
1: Behind closed doors, First Lady Edith Wilson, along with the president's physicians, had other concerns. They pleaded with him to rest. He was already running on fumes after six months of intense negotiations. Those closest to him feared the extra stress could lead to another health scare.
0: But Wilson refused to slow down. After all, this was a man who once proclaimed it was God's will for him to become president.
1: So Wilson told his doctor, quote, I cannot put my personal safety, my health in the balance against my duty. I must go.
0: In September, 1919, President Wilson and the First Lady, along with a crew of aides, servants, cooks, secret servicemen and members of the press, all crammed into the presidential train car, aptly called the Mayflower.
1: Just as his doctors feared, the trip proved taxing. Aides noticed that Wilson was talking to himself and his memory was getting increasingly worse.
0: Dazed and confused, the president made multiple stops a day. Oftentimes, he was heckled by people who disagreed with his policies.
1: The tour came to an unexpected end after only three and a half weeks on the road. One morning, the president told the first lady that he'd woken up to a splitting headache. After an evening speech in Pueblo, Colorado, he became nauseous, his face muscles started to twitch, and the left side of his mouth began to droop.
0: Edith was rightfully concerned. In hindsight, Wilson may have experienced a transient ischemic attack, or TIA, also known as a mini stroke. If left unchecked, a TIA could lead to more serious complications, like a full-blown stroke.
1: The Wilsons headed home so the president could get some much needed rest. He had a brief spurt of energy at Washington DC's Union Station where he was able to walk and greet the crowd welcoming him home. But four days later, the president's health took a turn for the worse.
0: On October 2, 1919, the First Lady phoned the White House's chief usher, Ike Hoover, and told him to summon her husband's physician.
1: The President had collapsed as he walked to his bathroom. Together, Edith and the White House doctor, Rear Admiral Kerry Grayson, gently moved him to his bed. The First Lady watched with bated breath as Dr. Grayson examined him. The future of the nation hung in the balance.
0: Ten minutes later, Dr. Grayson reached a grim diagnosis. The President had suffered a stroke that paralyzed the left side of his body. The ailment was caused by a blood clot in his brain.
1: The First Lady and Dr. Grayson sought the counsel of other doctors as well. Ultimately, they reached a discouraging conclusion.
0: According to the physicians, the president was, quote, seriously disabled, both in a medical and constitutional sense, end quote. Even if Wilson's condition improved, he would never function at the same level he did before his stroke.
1: Edith and Dr. Grayson mulled over whether the 62-year-old president could continue to do his job. But before they could even discuss a transfer of power, Dr. Grayson had to certify that Wilson was no longer fit
0: to serve. The First Lady wondered if it would be best for her husband's health if Vice President Thomas R. Marshall took over for him. But her husband's doctors were concerned that the president might feel worse if he ceded his power. After all, this was a sensitive moment in international affairs.
1: One of the physicians, Dr. Francis Durkham, told Edith that, quote, for Mr. Wilson to resign would have a bad effect on the country and a serious effect on our patient. He has staked his life and made his promise to the world to do all in his power to get the treaty ratified and make the League of Nations complete. If he resigns, the greatest incentive to recovery is gone.
0: Instead, they decided to keep the president's illness a closely guarded secret. They couldn't tell the American people, members of Congress, not even his most trusted advisors.
1: Coming up, the First Lady keeps the President's condition hidden from the world.
4: Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala.
3: And we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies.
4: You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups.
3: Some preach extreme religious practices, others warn of impending doom, and then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical.
4: Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organizations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult
3: leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial
4: or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows. Others operate in plain sight. All are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.
2: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some...
0: After President Woodrow Wilson suffered a paralyzing stroke on October 2, 1919, First Lady Edith Wilson was uncertain on how to proceed. Even though he couldn't walk and barely had the strength to speak, she and his doctors decided it would be best for Wilson's health if he remained in power.
1: So, from October to December 1919, President Wilson's health was kept a secret from the public, including almost everyone in the White House. But there were plenty of rumors.
0: To make things more confusing, the White House doctor, Admiral Kerry Grayson, kept giving varying accounts.
1: A day after the president's stroke, Dr. Grayson downplayed the commander-in-chief's condition. The physician told the Washington Post that Wilson was just dealing with a case of, quote, nervous exhaustion.
0: A week later, though, he reined in his optimism. The Associated Press published a report that read, quote, Hope that President Wilson soon might regain his normal health and resume fully the duties of his office, was swept away today by his physicians, who announced it would be impossible for him to leave his bed for an extended period."
1: Sensing concern from lawmakers and the public about the status of the presidency... Dr. Grayson then put out a more reassuring bulletin two days later.
0: This time he claimed, quote, the president's mind is clear as a bell, and there is nothing in his condition that renders it impossible for him to act.
1: Dr. Grayson felt, as long as the president had his wits about him, that he was still capable of serving. And this was the logic that Grayson continuously drew upon throughout the remainder of Wilson's time in
0: office. But the reality of the situation was the president was hardly functioning. To make matters worse, two weeks after his stroke, he suffered a prostate blockage, a painful condition that makes it difficult to urinate.
1: Doctors advised a risky emergency operation. However, the first lady turned them down, concerned that her husband wouldn't survive the procedure Between his paralyzing stroke and his throbbing bladder, the president was out of commission.
0: Despite his fragile state, Wilson never seemed to consider stepping down. In fact, his closest advisors never even got the chance to talk to Wilson about it because they were constantly intercepted by the first lady.
1: That's not to say they didn't try. From the beginning of Wilson's health woes, some members of the president's cabinet thought it best to have a transition of power. Just one day after Wilson's stroke, Secretary of State Robert Lansing cited the constitution to the president's private secretary, Joseph Tumulty. This situation was grounds for the vice president to assume the presidency.
0: But Tumulty and Dr. Grayson both refused to admit that Wilson was incapable of leading. And without access to the president, Nobody else knew the severity of his condition.
1: If the Secretary of State pushed harder for the President's removal, he could be deemed seditious. It might worry the country. Perhaps this is why after Secretary Lansing's conversation with Tumulty and Dr. Grayson, no one else tried to facilitate the transfer of power.
0: For the next six months, the cabinet did its best to keep the American government afloat. Although cabinet meetings are usually called by the president, Lansing regularly convened the group during Wilson's recovery. They needed to make sure matters of state didn't slip through the cracks. After those discussions, they briefed Edith, who recapped the points back to her husband.
1: This system of governance was certainly not ideal. And matters were made more complicated by the fact that Wilson thought his vice president, Thomas Marshall, was an utter fool.
0: To win the presidential election, Wilson had essentially used Marshall as a political pawn to capture the Midwestern vote. The president even went so far as to describe his running mate as a, quote, "...very small-caliber man."
1: Honestly, Marshall didn't seem to think too highly of himself, either. On a few rare occasions, Wilson entrusted him with a bigger role in government affairs but the vice president went out of his way to turn down the extra responsibilities.
0: Notably, while Wilson was in Paris negotiating the Treaty of Versailles, he authorized Marshall to run his cabinet meetings. After several sessions, Marshall recused himself from the role. Since his position as vice president also made him the president of the Senate, he claimed that presiding over the legislature presented a conflict of interest.
1: As a result, Marshall was often left out of important conversations at the White House. In fact, he was so out of the loop that he didn't know the true nature of President Wilson's condition until two weeks after his stroke.
0: Fearing that the president may be near death, Secretary Tumulty dispatched a trusted journalist, The Baltimore Sun's J. Fred Essery, to tell the vice president about Wilson's weak state. Marshall was at a complete loss. He later told Essery, quote, "'It was the first great shock of my life.'"
1: The news was all the more distressing because Marshall didn't want to be president. He reportedly told his wife that he was concerned his taking over the presidency could cause a civil war.
0: The vice president decided that he would only seize power if requested by Congress and if he had the written consent of the first lady and Dr. Grayson.
1: This left the presidency in a precarious position. We can't definitively say what Wilson's mental or physical health was at that moment, but he was so brittle that Dr. Grayson didn't even want him signing documents.
0: If Wilson was going to retain his position, his poor health would need to remain a complete secret.
1: As the days passed, access to the president remained limited. Only Edith and Dr. Grayson could regularly see him. But pressing matters of state needed to be addressed. So Edith took it upon herself to maintain order in the White House.
0: During her husband's recovery, she took on a lot of duties that were outside of her role as First Lady. Instead of tending to the social obligations, Edith acted as a gatekeeper staving off visitors and corresponding on the president's behalf.
1: This included fielding
0: documents and requests for action from Wilson's advisors. In fact, Tumulty passed along every document he received from cabinet members and legislators to the first lady. Edith then determined which were important enough to bring to her husband's attention and which could wait. Unsurprisingly, many of these inquiries went unanswered.
1: By Edith's own admission, she largely relied on her own judgment as to what policies were a priority. In effect, she set the agenda for the presidency.
0: Many people didn't appreciate her new role in the White House. For starters, her refusal to permit meetings with the president and failure to respond to letters prevented policymakers from addressing domestic and foreign affairs. Matters of state, which the president would have normally addressed in one morning, now took months to resolve.
1: In hindsight, Edith may have had other reasons to intercept the president's communications, like strained relationships with his advisors, dating back to the time of their wedding. Particularly men like Secretary Joseph Tumulty and advisor Colonel Edward House.
0: At the time, Tumulty and Colonel House had discouraged the marriage, though they believed they were simply doing their jobs, looking out for the president's best interests. They feared that if Wilson got married a mere year after his first wife passed, it would complicate his chances of winning re-election.
1: Although President Wilson wasted no time proposing to and marrying Edith, the First Lady never forgave them for trying to delay their engagement.
0: Tumulty and House weren't the only two advisors who provoked the First Lady's ire. Edith wasn't particularly fond of Secretary of State Robert Lansing either. The two had a long history of contentiousness.
1: The First Lady had been skeptical of Lansing ever since she accompanied her husband to the Paris Peace Conference. When the president first proposed Lansing for Secretary of State, Edith criticized him for what she thought was a lack of credentials.
0: And shortly after Wilson's stroke, Lansing attempted to hold cabinet meetings without the president's formal approval. While he was simply trying to keep the American government running, the first lady interpreted it as trying to push Wilson out of office.
1: Obviously, the Wilson administration's state of disarray, as exacerbated by the ailing president, didn't bode well for its policy goals. With the bedridden president unwilling to cede his power, unable to negotiate with lawmakers, and shut out from consulting his closest advisors, the Senate rejected the Treaty of Versailles. This was the first time in American history that the Senate had voted against a peace agreement.
0: Seeing that Wilson failed to meet to discuss the one policy item he was undoubtedly passionate about, it was evident he was in bad shape. And it wasn't long before Congress publicly raised the issue of the president's health. In the fall of 1919, the kidnapping of an American official named William Jenkins in Mexico sparked geopolitical tensions between the neighboring countries. Needing guidance, politicians demanded Wilson show his face.
1: Until this point, senators had privately speculated that the first lady was running the White House. After Jenkins' kidnapping, they no longer minced words. New Mexico's Republican Senator Albert Fall had already called for the president's removal in the wake of his stroke. He yelled at the Senate, quote, "Wilson is not acting. Mrs. Wilson is
0: president." Under Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, the Republicans used Jenkins' kidnapping as an opportunity to prove the president was not capable of governing. So, Senator Fall requested a meeting with the president. Lodge assumed that Wilson wouldn't agree, but that would only be more incentive to remove him from office.
1: In December 1919, tensions rose to the point that Edith couldn't say no. Finally, it marked the first time anyone outside of his inner circle would learn the full extent of Woodrow Wilson's health in two months. It was a meeting that would later be referred to as the Great
0: Camouflage. Coming up, the First Lady keeps the presidency afloat. Now back to the story.
1: In December 1919, it seemed that President Woodrow Wilson's health had reached its absolute worst. His Republican adversaries felt they could make a compelling case to remove him from office, They called a meeting to see for themselves just how much Wilson's health had declined. Then they planned to share details of his decline with the American public.
0: Although First Lady Edith Wilson had done a formidable job of keeping visitors away from her ailing husband, she knew that denying Republican senators a meeting would only exacerbate his woes. She suspected the politicians would then launch an impeachment inquiry, and try to prove that Edith had been running the government ever since the president's stroke.
1: Yet again, the fate of the presidency rested in the hands of the Wilsons and Dr. Grayson. If the meeting went poorly, it could prematurely end President Wilson's term, maybe even squander his grand hopes for the League of Nations.
0: So to make sure they would pass this test, The Wilsons and Dr. Grayson did a dress rehearsal before the senators arrived.
1: President Wilson was assisted from his rolling chair to his bed, where his head was propped up by pillows. He covered his body except for his head and right hand. Meanwhile, he kept his paralyzed left hand completely obscured.
0: They kept the room dimly lit by a sole bedside light. Within reach of President Wilson's functioning hand, Edith placed a copy of the Senate's report on Mexico.
1: Those around the president carefully positioned themselves. A nurse stood by the side of the bed, the first lady at the foot of the bed, and Dr. Grayson hovered in the doorway, likely to keep the incoming senators from getting too close.
0: According to White House Chief Usher Ike Hoover, on December 5th at 2.30 p.m., the quote, great camouflage took place. Democratic Senator Gilbert Hitchcock and Senator Albert Fall greeted the president's physician outside the bedroom. They asked if there was a time limit allotted to their meeting.
1: Knowing that the senators were looking to cast doubt on the president's health, Dr. Grayson told them there'd be no limit within reason.
0: Sitting up in bed, Wilson summoned all the strength he could muster to give the senators a firm handshake. Armed with a pen and paper, The First Lady took notes. She wanted a record in case the Senators went to the press later and exaggerated the President's condition.
1: When Fall asked the President if he had read the Senate's report on Mexico, Wilson reached for his copy and wagged it in the air. It was another way for him to indicate he was still able-bodied.
0: Fall shared his grievances about Jenkins' kidnapping and advocated for a war against Mexico. Dr. Grayson excused himself, only to return in the middle of Fall's passionate case for military action. The physician announced that there was no need for violence. Jenkins had actually just been released.
1: The timing could not have been any better for Wilson. The stated reason for Fall's meeting was no longer valid. The president went into a speech about why it behooved the United States to be cautious in its dealings with Mexico.
0: By the end of the meeting, Edith had used up all of her paper and resorted to scribbling notes on an envelope. The alleged final exchange between the President and Senator Fall would live in infamy.
1: At the conclusion of his visit, Fall reportedly told Wilson, quote, I have been praying for you. To which the President cheekily replied, quote, Which way, Senator?
0: Over 100 members of the press eagerly waited outside the White House for Senators Fall and Hitchcock. They praised Wilson's understanding of the conflict in Mexico and assured the reporters that he was in fine mental and physical form.
1: The following day, the New York Times published a headline about the meeting that read, quote, Senators see President. Fall and Hitchcock report that his condition is excellent. Thanks to cunning, planning, and an impressive performance by Edith and the president, he saved his job. But he was still barely well enough to leave his bed.
0: So, for the remainder of Wilson's presidency, the First Lady continued to share the burden of his duties. The Wilson's days began at 8 a.m. each morning, when the president was woken up by White House usher I. Coover. He was then pushed in his wheelchair to breakfast with the First Lady, where she briefed him on the day's newspaper headlines. Shortly after, he was taken back to his quarters for a nap.
1: From there, Edith tended to White House matters, stopping in the middle of the day for lunch with her husband. They chatted about current affairs, but President Wilson rarely said much. When he did, he frequently forgot what he was saying mid-sentence.
0: Soon, the president's mental faculties became a topic of national conversation. A couple months after the great camouflage, Wilson was criticized by reporters for firing Secretary of State Robert Lansing. He didn't like the idea that Lansing was running cabinet meetings in his absence. He saw it as a sign of insubordination, a sentiment that eerily echoed Edith's.
1: Members of the press, as well as top administration officials, found it curious that the president would remove his secretary of state for trying to keep the government running. A journalist for the Maryland Star questioned who was really running the country, calling the first lady, quote, the acting president.
0: Which brings us, finally, to our one and only conspiracy theory today that First Lady Edith Wilson acted as the chief executive of the United States while President Woodrow Wilson was incapacitated.
1: According to the Constitution, quote, "...in case of the removal of the president from office, or of his death, resignation, or inability to discharge the powers and duties of the said office, the same shall devolve on the vice president."
0: Given those instructions and Wilson's poor health, it seems like he should have ceded his power to Vice President Thomas Marshall.
1: But Edith may have exploited the Constitution's vagueness. This clause on presidential succession didn't outline a removal process or define what qualifies as an inability. In fact, this ambiguity was not addressed until 48 years later, when the 25th Amendment was ratified in 1967.
0: The new law included a stipulation that allowed Congress to remove the president with a two-thirds vote from both houses. That could have very well occurred if the amendment was in effect during the Wilson administration. In any case, we can only hold the president and first lady accountable to the law of their time— given the gray area surrounding succession, there wasn't a clear mandate to force President Wilson into giving up his power.
1: The issue is more black and white to me. Remember, President Wilson's own doctors had deemed him, quote, seriously disabled, both in a medical and constitutional sense. With that diagnosis in mind, Edith's unwillingness to facilitate the transfer of power makes me think she was seizing the opportunity to be in charge.
0: I don't know if I'd go that far. While some historians have cast Edith as a Machiavellian wife waiting in the wings, she was the one who suggested that Vice President Thomas Marshall take over after the president's stroke. It was her husband's doctor, Francis Durkham, who convinced her otherwise. The First Lady wanted to do whatever was in the best interest of her husband's health.
1: That seems like a convenient position for her to preach, especially since Edith had actually shown interest in her husband's political work before his stroke. During their courtship, she and President Wilson constantly exchanged letters in which he kept her apprised of his work. He even sent Edith government documents pertaining to foreign and domestic affairs, Wilson marked up these papers with his comments and invited her to give her opinion, despite the fact that she had no background in civic service.
0: Edith might have offered her thoughts on the president's work, but there's no indication that he implemented her opinions into his policymaking. As First Lady, she may have exerted more influence than the simple steward she identified as, but she didn't fulfill the many duties we associate with the President of the United States like signing bills into law, making judicial appointments, or granting pardons. In retrospect, she seems like more of a powerful secretary than a secret president. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the absolute truth, I'll give this theory a 4. I'm
1: not sure I agree. Just because there's no record crediting Edith's advice as the inspiration for Wilson's executive actions, it doesn't mean he ignored her opinions. Sure, after his stroke, Edith didn't perform all of the president's duties, but she did handle some of the most significant ones, like determining the daily agenda. She also controlled what information the president received and who he met with. Today, there's a group of high-level political aides, led by the White House Chief of Staff, who are in charge of these tasks. Plus, I'm not as confident in Edith's intentions. I'm inclined to believe that the most responsible thing for Edith to do for Wilson, and certainly for the country, would have been to help facilitate the transfer to the vice president. This theory gets a five out of 10 from me.
0: Ultimately, President Wilson's vision never panned out the way he'd hoped. In March, 1920, four months after the treaty was defeated in the Senate, a second attempt failed to garner the required two thirds vote. Since the League of Nations was part of the agreement, its rejection meant that the U.S. would not be joining the very body for which its own president had fought so passionately to create. Although his peace efforts, including the creation of the League, did inevitably earn Woodrow Wilson the Nobel Peace Prize.
1: The president remained weak for the remainder of his time in office and beyond. When his term ended in March 1921... Woodrow and Edith moved to their own home in Washington, D.C. As her husband's time in politics ended, so did Edith's.
0: But Edith remained by her husband's bedside during their retirement. Even with the stress of the presidency behind him, Wilson never fully recovered and continued battling health issues. On February 3, 1924, about three years after he left office, President Wilson passed away his last word was, quote, Edith.
1: Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Monday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify.
0: Until then, remember... The truth isn't always the best story.
1: And the official story isn't always the truth.
0: Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Ben Hanani. With writing assistance by Connor Sampson and Laurie Gottlieb. Fact-checking by Bennett Logan and research by Coleman Gray. Conspiracy Theory stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.
4: You aren't supposed to know about them, unless they want you to. Powerful groups with their own very specific agendas. And if you find yourself on the inside, good luck getting out. Hi, I'm Hannah Maguire.
3: And I'm Saruti Bala. Join us every Tuesday for our new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies.
4: Whether it's doomsday predictions, deadly greed, or world domination, each week we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organizations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.